Welcome to the latest episode of Silver Screen Superheroes, released through Bureau 42. I'm your host, Blaine Dowler. This month we are looking at X-Men The Last Stand, the third live-action X-Men film in our X-Men series, which was originally released on May 26th, 2006. In previous episodes, we've talked about some of the things that were going on behind the scenes, and in particular how they related to Superman Returns. This film was the last guaranteed Fox film in this main series. Fox hadn't decided if they're going to continue to make it beyond this point. Part of that decision-making process was because the main cast had originally only signed on for two films. So everyone that we see who carried over from the first two movies into these did so voluntarily after signing new contracts and new scripts. The original plan Fox had was to give solo character films only after this point. Now, those contracts that didn't carry over included the contract of Brian Singer, who had directed the first two films. And he and Fox were unable to come to an agreement on exactly how they wanted to make this film, you know, not just in terms of payments, but in terms of content and story and creative input. Now, Warner Brothers had heard that rumor, so they went to Brian Singer and offered him the chance to reboot the Superman series, which he took. And he brought screenwriters Dan Harris and Michael Doherty with him, along with actor James Marsden and a number of the other production staff members. The concept of Singer and Company was to do a film based exclusively on the Dark Phoenix saga, and that had always been the plan, as we probably could have guessed from the way number two ended, given that Gene died by disappearing at the bottom of a large body of water. Now in this film, Gene would end up joining the Hellfire Club under the influence of Emma Frost, who they would want to have been played by Sigourney Weaver. They also wanted Keanu Reeves as Gambit in that iteration, but because Singer left, well, they had an opening for a new director, and the directors wanted to do new plans. It changed the production schedule, though not the release date. The May 26, 2006 release date was set in stone as far as Fox was concerned. So when they eventually did settle on a new director after signing Matthew Vaughn, who left because he also didn't like the time frame there and he had some family issues to deal with, they ended up getting Brett Ratner in. Now, they asked for the screenwriters on this film to go do independent drafts that would be combined later, and these are what they call competing drafts. Zach Penn had done that for previous films, and he was a little tired of the practice. So when Fox asked for Zach Penn to come up with his own draft and Simon Kinberg to come up with his own draft, it was Zach Penn's idea to say, you know what, why don't we work together for once and put this whole movie together into something a little more coherent? And that's the agreement that they actually came to. So just to go through the credits of those creative individuals prior to this, director Brett Radner had been considered for a while. He was even considered to do an X-Men live-action film in 1996. As of the time of this recording, he's got 28 director credits to his name, including the short film Whatever Happened to Mason Reese, followed by Money Talks in 1997. Rush Hour from 1998 was probably the biggest film before that, or before X-Men 3. He also directed The Family Man, Rush Hour 2, and Red Dragon, which was the reboot of Manhunter. Following The Last Stand, he wouldn't return to the X-Men, although he did do Rush Hour 3, some single episodes of TV series and some music videos, the film Tower Heist, 2014 Circulies, and he's been announced as the director of Beverly Hills Cop 4. Now, he was not personally a big comic fan growing up, so he wasn't terribly familiar with the source material, so he leaned heavily on the producers and writers to tell him, this is what's accurate, this is what we want to do. He didn't want the fans angry at him. Now, that may come as a surprise to some of us who watched it because of some of the liberties taken, but it sounds like Brett Radner surrounded himself with people he trusted, and the input he got from those people was either misinterpreted or the people who were giving him ideas 
and working with him at Fox just didn't quite understand what most of the fans were looking for because this was not a film that was well received by fans. I did find personally that I actually enjoyed it quite a bit more on this second viewing than I did in my first viewing almost 10 years ago. I actually haven't seen this since I watched it opening night. As far as the writing team goes, writer Simon Kinberg was coming into this following the legacy Triple X State of the Union and Mr. and Mrs. Smith. That's the 2005 Mr. and Mrs. Smith, not the Alfred Hitchcock Mr. and Mrs. Smith. And his work on this was followed by Jumper, Sherlock Holmes, X-Men Days of Future Past, Star Wars Rebels, this year's Fantastic Four, the 2015 version, as well as the 2016 X-Men Apocalypse. So it appears he's become one of Fox's go-to guys for their superhero projects. And the other writer was Zach Penn, who we discussed last time since he had worked on X-Men 2. Since X-Men 2, he worked on Incident at Loch Ness, Suspect Zero, Elektra, the Fantastic Four video game, and he's got more superhero credits to follow, including 2008's Incredible Hulk, 2012's Avengers. So it appears that, yeah, he does have the comic book credentials because some of the movies that he's worked on were far better received than this one. I strongly suspect that a lot of the issues we have with this one were a direct result of losing not one, but two major directors coming into this with very short notice and without changing the release date of the film. There's only so much you can do when you're coming in on a project and looking for rewrites and budget changes and location changes when your release date is set in stone for something of this scale. Jumping ahead to the business end, with a budget of $210 million, when this came out, it was the most expensive film ever made. Now, there were some cast changes as well. Originally, Halle Berry had no intention of coming back to the franchise. She felt that she deserved more screen time than she got in the earlier films, which is something I don't personally agree with. I think she had quite a bit of film for something that's, at least in the source material, always been an ensemble project. I'm actually not happy with how much time is spent on Wolverine. These really are Wolverine movies, and he stands out as the single character, which, generally speaking, not necessarily on an issue-by-issue basis, but on a year-by-year basis, when X-Men was at its sales peak, it was pretty evenly split between the characters. At least sales peak in terms of percentage of entire comic market. But Halle Berry changed her mind for a couple of reasons. One, her desire for more screen time led to friction between her and Brian Singer. So when he left, she was more open to the possibility of coming back. And two, her own attempt to launch her own franchise with Catwoman flopped quite spectacularly as we discussed in our big screen Batman series last year. Part of what they did to entice her back was to give Storm the leadership role that she had had in the comics. So in the comics, following the Dark Phoenix saga, Cyclops chose to leave the X-Men and Storm was the one that stepped up as field commander. In the movie, that was handled a little bit differently. Fox wanted Cyclops to die to give some weight to the story that they were going to give to Jean Grey. So it was the Fox Studios' decision to kill him off early. And it turns out that Brett Ratner was the one who fought to have him die off-screen so they could leave the door open to bring him back for a later film because he felt that was unfair to the character. Some of the other changes that Ratner requested are more physical effects than CGI. There's still a lot of CGI in here, but the material that's floating by Alkali Lake is floating with wires, and they're, generally speaking, not CGI product. When cars are launching at the end of the film, they are actually cars launching through the air. Colossus in this film was not done with CGI as he was in X2, but rather he's given a skin-tight reflective outfit so that he just looks like that, and since the actor is six foot nine, he pulls it off. Now, there certainly is CGI in here, 
For example, Cyclops' glasses floating in the air at Alkali Lake involve CGI. One of the standout effects of the whole film is in the first few minutes when we have a flashback and they actually de-age Patrick Stewart and Ian McKellen as Charles Xavier and Magneto by about 20 years, which was done by providing numerous photos of the two of them 20 years ago to the CGI crew, who then had a computer software program called Lola try to do a 3D model of that and essentially draw the model of what they looked like 20 years ago over the actors where they were standing today. Now, Brett Ratner also came in asking for all the stuff that Singer asked for and never got. And that was something he was pushing for coming in, is what did Brian Singer want that he didn't get? Sounds like Ratner was a big fan of Brian Singer's work in the first two films. Because of that, we finally get Angel and Beast, which round out the members of the original team. So all of the original X-Men from X-Men number one, 1963, have finally appeared in live action on screen. We also get the Danger Room and Sentinels and a few other things. Days of Future Past gets an homage in the Danger Room training before it becomes the outright sequel it would later become. So the overall plot begins with a flashback to Magneto and Xavier recruiting Jean for Xavier's school back when she was a teenager. She was the most powerful mutant either of them had ever met and was able to lift all the cars in the street, disturbing some of their neighbors, one of whom has a garden hose and is played by Stan Lee, the other of whom has a lawnmower and is played by Chris Claremont, who is probably the best-known X-Men writer following Stan Lee. Skip ahead to the present, and we see that Scott is not coping with Gene's death well, and from what we see of him in a private session is that he's actually somewhat haunted by some sort of psychic call back to Alkali Lake. So while Wolverine has been filling in for him with student training and instruction and that sort of thing, Cyclops just hasn't been coping well, and he heads out to Alkali Lake, where he arrives. Gene is somehow alive. We learn later that it was her telekinesis that formed a cocoon that kept her alive at the bottom of the lake. She appears in a flash of light and is a very different person who ends up killing Cyclops off screen after James Marsden has had a grand total of less than five minutes of screen time. It's that treatment that helped Marsden agree to go to Superman Returns with Brian Singer. So it feels almost like he was shortchanged because of that. He is one of the few that already had a short shooting schedule before that was committed. They did end up having to do some rewrites around the shooting schedules of others because the production schedule kept changing. So that's actually why Rebecca Romaine was cut back as Mystique. That's why Rogue leaves for the whole third act and even a good chunk of the second act of the film and isn't really involved in the finale. They had to rewrite the script to fit the filming schedules of these lead actors. As I said, Jean comes back different. It turns out that early on, when they realized how powerful she was, Professor Xavier helped Jean split herself into split personalities and suppress the more powerful violent personality. And she doesn't even remember that split. But that second personality was the Phoenix. Now, Famke Janssen did a lot of her own research into multiple personality disorders to try and make it a more convincing role. And I am glad she did. As I said, I enjoyed this more than I did before. And seeing it opening night, I think my problem was that the Dark Phoenix saga is a huge and very well-respected story in comic book history. In fact, in 2014, Marvel put out a vote for all their listeners for the 75 greatest Marvel stories of all time, and it came in at number five. Now, in a time when it's very rare to have extended story arcs, the only story arc that Marvel had published that was more than three issues was the Kree Skrull War, and even that in the Avengers really feels like three different three-issue stories in that nine-issue plot. The Dark Phoenix saga kicks off with Uncanny X-Men issue 100, 
and the pieces are being laid, and the pieces are being laid to slowly build to the saga proper, which ran for 10 issues from issues 129 to 138. And that's not even counting the fallout after the fact. So we are looking at over 40, close to 50 issues of the comic that deal just with the Dark Phoenix saga and just with that story. So with Singer's original plan of doing just the Dark Phoenix saga, and hopefully in a longer film, they could have pulled off the story on that scale. Here they use that as a basis, but they also pulled in the first arc from Joss Whedon's run, which is another good one to pull. That same list of the 75 greatest Marvel stories put Joss Whedon's complete 25-issue run at spot number 45. So of the thousands of stories that Marvel has published, two of the best Marvel stories, let alone X-Men stories, just Marvel in general, were the two chosen to be combined into this film. Unfortunately, I think with the time allotted, the lack of proper setup, the 104-minute runtime, this is not a film that's big enough to support both of those stories and do them justice. So on the one hand, we have Jean's turn to the dark side to become Dark Phoenix and actually start working with Magneto and his brotherhood. While on the other hand, we've got the government working with a cure for mutants, developed by Warren Worthington II, father of Warren Worthington III, aka Angel, who is himself a mutant born with wings. So Warren Worthington II is an industrialist who's managed to fund research into creating a quote-unquote cure for the mutant gene. It's something that suppresses the behavior of the mutant gene so that people are simply normal. So ultimately, Beast joins the team after working as a mutant advisor to the president because he doesn't like the direction that things are going. And the two sides all come to a head with a fight over Leech, who's a mutant with the ability to suppress powers of others. And by the time it's all said and done, both Magneto and Mystique have been given the cure. So they are no longer active mutants, although there is a hint just before the credits that Magneto's powers have returned. Now, in this process, Jean ends up killing Professor X, which is another point that did not sit well with fans. Now, there was a hint following the credits that Professor X had survived. And the idea was that he was able to move his consciousness into the body of a man who'd been in a vegetative state his entire life. And that's on Moira Island, overseen by Moira McTaggart, played in an uncredited role by Olivia Williams of Rushmore and the Sixth Sense. There are a few questions in here, some of which may just be the rushed script pages. For example, Professor X says that Gene is the only class 5 mutant he's ever encountered. And yet when this version of Callisto, which is a combination of Callisto, Caliban, and Quicksilver from the comics, encounters Magneto and Pyro, she says that those two are the only class 5 mutants in the room, and nobody else is above class 3. So apparently Professor X has met at least three class 5 mutants, and if Magneto and Pyro are on the list, he should be on that list himself. Now there are a number of other mutants who make their appearance in here for the first time. We'll just run through some of them as well as the people who play them. Since it is a huge cast of essentially cameos rather than actual characters. Now, one of them is played by Julian Richings. He's a Canadian character actor with a very distinctive look who's had a lot of work over the years. In this film, he's the mutant theater organizer who's in the church that Brian Singer used to film the church scenes in X-Men 2, which is across the street from the building used for Warren Worthington's research facility in Vancouver. He also appears in Man of Steel, Cube, Wrong Turn. Supernatural as Death, he's been in Orphan Black, Transporter the Series, Kingdom Hospital, I quite enjoyed his work as one of the cleaners in John Woo's Once a Thief, the TV version. So he certainly has quite the history as a character actor. Now, most prominent actors in the new cast is probably Kelsey Grammer as Beast, who fought for the role so hard that he did his first audition in 20 years. 
Now, Kelsey Graham is probably known best for playing Frasier, or Dr. Frasier Crane on both Cheers and Frasier, the spinoff. He did voices in Toy Story 2, Transformers Age of Extinction, Anastasia. You almost certainly know who Kelsey Grammer is. We've got Vinnie Jones, who I recognized as Sebastian Morin from Elementary, playing the juggernaut in this film. He's also been in Snatch, Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels, and he was in Swordfish with Halle Berry and Hugh Jackman prior to this. Now, this version of the Juggernaut is based more on the Ultimate Comics version. In the classic version that first appeared in the 60s, he's actually not a mutant. He is a stepbrother of Charles Xavier, who got his powers from a mystical artifact. In the year 2000, Marvel launched a new line of continuity under the Ultimate imprint to make it more accessible to new readers, which was very successful for the first few years it was in operation. lasted far longer than most imprints of that sort do. In that version, Juggernaut is a full-blown mutant, and that's the version used for this film. We have Ellen Page playing Kitty Pride, aka Shadowcat. This is the third of four appearances of Shadowcat in these films, and Ellen Page will become the only person to play Shadowcat twice. She's been recast each time up to this point. She's probably better known for Juno, Hard Candy, and Inception. She is probably one of Hollywood's most talented actresses. I do like the way they handle Kitty Pride in this film. Kitty Pride was one of the characters that was introduced to the school as a fresh student early in Chris Claremont's run, and she actually was brought into the team during the original Dark Phoenix saga by Emma Frost, who, as I said, Brian Singer wanted to have played by Sigourney Weaver. Now, she was known for being a very geeky character, very nerdy, and she's one that a lot of readers identified with, and Joss Whedon openly admits he had a crush on, and we see a lot of that intelligence here. So when she sees the Juggernaut going after Leech, she uses her powers of being able to phase through walls to beat him there. She manages to lure him into going the wrong direction, gets to Leech first, realizes what Leech's powers are and that he'll disable her abilities, and she manages to use that to plan ahead and have the Juggernaut take himself down. So she's one of the characters that's handled very well. Now Daniel Cudmore reprises his role as Colossus, and he will again. Since The Last X-Men, he's had other appearances in Stargate SG-1, The Collector, Are We There Yet, and Alone in the Dark. And he will continue to have other jobs going through, which we'll discuss as we get into X-Men Days of Future Past. But he is a huge individual. He is legitimately six foot nine. So he was cast because he really is Colossus size to begin with. Ben Foster is here as Angel. He's best known for Lone Survivor, Three Tentiuma, Pandorum, and The Mechanic, all of which come after this film. Prior to The Last Stand, he was in Six Feet Under for 22 episodes, Alpha Dog, The Dead Zone. He was Spacker Dave in the 2004 Punisher film. He was in Phone Booth. He seems to have gotten his first major start in Flash Forward in 1996, in all 26 episodes of that one. Now, his character is similar to the comic book character, but it's really hard to judge because he just simply doesn't have a lot to do. He's almost the MacGuffin that gets the ball rolling that inspires the cure, and that's about it. Now, he inspires the cure as the son of Michael Murphy. Michael Murphy is an actor with a long list of credits. He was the mayor in Batman Returns. For those who are listening to the comic book movie podcast, that might be his most familiar role. But his credits go right back to Combat Man from Uncle Ben Casey and Hogan's Heroes on TV in the 1960s. So he's had a number of roles, including Batman Returns, X-Men The Last Stand, White House Down, and is probably best known for his role in Woody Allen's Manhattan from 1979. Now, actress Daniel Ramirez is the one who plays Callisto in this film. Although, as I said, this Callisto is different from the comic book Callisto. The comic book Callisto 
led a group called the Morlocks, which were mutants whose powers had them so disfigured or otherwise dysfunctional that they were hiding from society and living in the sewers. In the film, she's got the name Callisto and a little bit of a leadership role. She just steps up to be one of Magneto's top lieutenants, but she's got the ability of Caliban, who is a different Morlock, to detect other mutants. It basically gives them a portable Cerebro. Cerebro was not used or needed in this film because we had Callisto. They also give her Quicksilver's abilities to run at super speed, primarily to make her more of a combatant character, so she can take Storm on -on one-on-one and does a few times, although I don't like how much trouble she gave Storm given that Storm in the comics took her down quite easily when Storm had no powers and was strictly hand-to-hand. Now, prior to this, she was Caridad in three episodes of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. She was in Fat Albert. She was in episodes of The Sopranos before and after this. She was also in Heroes as Maya Herrera, Entourage, Devious Minds, American Reunion, which was one of the American Pie sequels. So she's got a decent list of credits. Now, Shora Agdashlu is a name I've almost certainly mispronounced. She plays Dr. Kavita Rao, who appeared in the Joss Whedon run of the comics as a scientist who developed the cure. And that's the role she fulfills here, although she was originally cast as Dr. Cecilia Reyes, almost an opponent to her and a mutant herself, although that was changed during production. Prior to this, she had guest appearances in Matlock and Martin, 12 episodes of 24 as Dina Araz. She was in The Exorcism of Emily Rose, but this may have been her highest profile project prior to this. Following this, she was in The Lake House, Smith, House of Saddam, Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants 2, Flash Forward, House, Grimm, for seven episodes. She's also known for The Stoning of Soria M and House of Sand and Fog. So she's certainly a working actress, but doesn't seem to be really a household name just yet. Now, Joseph Summer plays the president. He's another one with a rather lengthy set of credits, dating right back to Dirty Harry in 1971. The original Stepford Wives, Close Encounters, The Third Kind, an episode of Scarecrow and Mrs. King, Hothouse, The Equalizer. We're looking at 100 acting credits in total. Best known for his work here, in Witness, in Brett Ratner's The Family Man, and in Patch Adams. Now, Bill Duke plays Trask here. He's previously been in Sister Act 2, Back in the Habit, Predator, Hoodlum, Deep Cover, Hill Street Blues. He's another guy with a fairly lengthy list of credits, including 58 director credits to add to his 61 actor credits. So he is definitely a working actor and a well-respected one. Now, here he plays Trask because one of the ideas that Brett Radner and his writing team had is that the government would be working on a Sentinel program in the background. There's a couple of issues with that. For one, we already see Sentinels in the Danger Room. So if the project hadn't been developed and released yet, how would the X-Men have the designs for the Danger Room? The second problem is one that wasn't a problem at the time this was released, but X-Men Days of Future Past brought in the Sentinels and Bolivar Trask in a very big way. And Peter Dinklage does not resemble Bill Duke in any way, shape, or form. Now, we also see Eric Dane as Jamie Madrox, aka the Multiple Man. He's best known for Grey's Anatomy, Barley and Me, and Burlesque. His character here is one of the ones that really rubbed me the wrong way. He's got the right amount of smart aleck attitude, they represented his powers accurately, but the comic book character was not a villain. He was actually team leader of X-Factor for a while, and he was one of the people who helped Moira McTaggart on Moira Island. So his powers filled out some nice plot points in the film, but aside from his appearance and a little bit of costume design with his t-shirt, he bears little or no resemblance to the comic book character. Although to be fair to Eric Dane, 
he played the part as written very well. He didn't have much to do, but he did everything he was asked to do very effectively. We also have Cameron Bright playing Leech. Now, this is a very different take on the physical appearance of Leech. Leech in the comics is small and green. Cameron Bright is neither particularly small nor green. Prior to this, he'd been in a few made-for-TV movies. He guest appeared on Dark Angel. He was in The Butterfly Effect, Thank You for Smoking, Stargate SG-1. Following this, he was also in Juno, Christmas in Wonderland, Twilight Saga films as Alec, Motive, and he's got other movies coming out this year. Now, he is actually the only member of the cast that I've actually met. So I met him back in 2007, so the year after this one came out. And yeah, he seems like a a nice enough guy, fairly down to earth. So he has been working, especially in Canada, for quite a while. And we also have other mutants represented in kind of bit roles. So Kei Wong reappears as Jubilee or Jubilation Lee, but again, it's essentially a non-speaking role. She's barely more than an extra. The same is true of Shauna Kane as Siren or Teresa Rourke Cassidy, who would go on to play Roxanne in Red Riding Hood. Also, May Melanson. She plays the character that you can just barely recognize as Psylocke in this. She's one of Magneto's lieutenants as well. Came in with Callisto. The purple hair is really the only relationship to Psylocke, and even that is pretty loose. She appears as Jamie Chen in The L Word for six episodes. She was in Rush Hour 2, also directed by Brett Ratner prior to this, as well as Pathology and Shrink. Now, her role as Psylocke, Psylocke's history in the comics is complex, but she is not a villain. She's actually the sister to Captain Britain, who was killed but had her mind transplanted in the body of an Asian woman and trained as a ninja. So her only role as a villain was brief and under mind control, after which she joined the X-Men, or I should say rejoined the X-Men. And we also have an actress known only as Omera. She was born with three names, but she just goes by one. This is her third of four acting credits playing Arclight who is a character from the comics, but certainly not one that has worked with Callisto in the past and who serves as Callisto's lieutenant in this. We also see Lance Gibson as Spike. The filmmakers credit Spike as a character from one of the side titles in Marvel Comics, but Spike actually originated on the X-Men Evolution animated series and was the nephew of Storm. Now, this Spike is certainly not the nephew of Storm. This actor has credits going back to Rumble in the Bronx in 1995, He's also been in later series, including a couple episodes of Arrow. He's best known for Rumble in the Bronx, this film, Romeo Must Die, and Fantastic Four, Rise of the Silver Surfer. Now, although he's not playing a mutant, Anthony Heald is in this. He's best known for his work in Silence of the Lambs, Boston Public, Red Dragon, and 8mm. He's got a brief appearance as the FBI interrogator, who is quickly killed by Mystique. And then moving into the -the behind-the-scenes people, Brett Ratner brought in John Powell, He was very impressed with his work in Born Identity as the composer. He's also been the composer for Rio, Shrek, Be Cool, How to Train Your Dragon 2, and quite a few other films. He's got 72 composer credits to his name. Dante Spinotti was one of the cinematographers that worked on this because of the Rush production schedule. He was the main contributor, but there were actually three cinematographers because a lot of them had prior and subsequent commitments. But he's best known for this, Public Enemies, Heat, and L.A. Confidential. Now, there are three editors on the team, including Mark Goldblatt, who's best known for editing Terminator, Terminator 2, Rise of the Planet of the Apes, Super Mario Brothers, Last Boy Scout, Predator 2, Jumpin' Jack Flash. He's got 36 editorial credits, including a lot of action films. 
Mark Helfrich also edited this, as well as Predator, Red Dragon, Rush Hour. He's one that Brett Ratner really likes, and he's actually edited all of Ratner's films, including Family Man, the Rush Hour sequels, and so forth. And his credits date back to Revenge of the Ninja in 1983. The third and final editor is Julia Wong, who edited this, 2014's Hercules, Unfaithful, Red Riding Hood in 2011, Pink Panther 2, Good Luck Chuck. She's got 17 credits to her name. So overall, this is a movie that it wasn't really a hit with audiences, particularly comic book fans, because of some of the liberties that were taken and the very rushed nature of the Dark Phoenix storyline. Famke Janssen did actually a very good job with her performance. She did the best that she could and better than I thought anyone could expect to do, but she just didn't have the material needed to work with to carry the film under its primary story, especially given some of the ways it was set up. For example, she was just watching the final battle instead of participating until the final moments. Ratner's reasoning is sound that, well, he did that because as soon as she starts participating in the battle, nobody else matters, right? She is the only opponent that needs to be defeated. While that is true, it does still make it feel like the battle's long and drawn out because she's choosing not to participate. I think that would have been better had they cut back and forth to her a few more times and shown more of an internal struggle between her two personalities about whether or not to participate and if so, which side to participate on. In any event, one of the things that we do with each film is take a look at the budget in the box office and see how this stacks up financially. As I said, at the time this came out, its $210 million budget was a record holder. In its opening weekend, it made $122,864,157, which puts it on a very good start and a nice track to make that money back. Unfortunately, the fan response was so weak and the word of mouth was so poor that that ended up being over 50% of its final domestic gross. In the end, the total domestic gross after a four-month run was only $234,360,014, so just barely more than the actual production budget. International box office only came in at about $225 million, so the worldwide total box office was ultimately $459,359,555. So using our general rule of thumb, where the domestic box office take has to be two to three times the budget in order to break even, this did not come close to breaking even. If we include the worldwide, it's a little over double, so it probably did eventually break even, but not until it came out on DVD and Blu-ray. Nonetheless, the franchise as a whole made enough money that they continued. So we actually have four more films in the X-Men series to discuss, with another one coming out next year that will be discussed after it's available for home video markets. But continuing to go through them in production order, next month's installment will be X-Men Origins Wolverine. So please join us on the 14th of next month and every month thereafter as we continue to look at silver screen superheroes. Feel free to rate the show on iTunes or Stitcher as well as any other shows you listen to. It helps us all get noticed. And thank you for listening.